0: Good morning, or good afternoon, or good, good evening, wherever you may be listening from. Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS Pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Centre for South Asia at Stanford. All our podcasts and information about the centre are available at southasia.stanford.edu. I am joined today from Mumbai by one of our Global Studies South Asia alumni, Raghav Merotra, who is going to tell us more about what he did at Stanford and what he has been doing since he graduated. Um, Raghav, I know it's late for you. Thank you so much for making time. How are you doing?
1: I'm good, Lalita. Thanks for having me. Uh, always, a, always a good time to keep in touch with the center after graduation.
0: It was lovely when I emailed you to see if you were up for doing a podcast. You're like, oh, yeah, I've been following the series. That was very nice to hear. So thank you for that.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: You you are, as I said, an alumnus of Stanford. What program were you in? Uh,
1: So I graduated in 2018 uh, with a BA in history. um, And my senior thesis was titled uh, Removed, Remade, Remembered the Concept of Home for Witnesses of India's Partition. And for that, I worked with uh, Professor Cruz and Professor Menon uh, and got a lot of support as well from uh, Madiha Akhtar. Uh, And basically, you know, during my senior year, I kind of used the thesis to uh, examine the lived experiences of partition for Sindhis migrating between Sindh and Bombay uh, in the 40s and specifically in 47 and 48.
0: How did, you, how did you end up doing that? What, do you have personal a personal history or, or how did that come to be?
1: Yeah, I think like many others who kind of write on this issue, um, I do have a personal connection. So my maternal family um, is from uh, Sindh, from Karachi. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I kind of grew up with these stories. Uh, and, you know, uh, I kind of hopped on the bandwagon of people using oral histories to examine uh, you know, these kinds of questions. So that's how I ended up here.
0: Right. Um, speaking of oral histories, well, we, of course, featured Madia Achter in our uh, podcast series earlier this year. Uh, all the podcasts will remain available uh, through the media tab on our website, southasia.stanford.edu. Um, and then you may not have heard this yet, but uh, just last week I spoke to the South Asia curator, Ryan Perkins, about, among many other things, the 1947 partition archive. Was mm. the archive a part of your thesis? Did it Did it help?
1: Um. So, I mean, I didn't formally use it uh, for my thesis, but, you know, I, I took the class with Madiha on uh, comparative partitions. And that's actually what um, the class out of which my thesis grew. Uh, and, I, you, you know, we had a chance in the class to kind of critically examine the archive, um, critically examine archives in general, you know, um, talking about what kind of narratives does the 1947 archive privilege uh, in terms of uh, you know class and caste in particular uh, in terms of uh, you know does it privilege narratives of those who survived uh, and I, you know that kind of helped me uh, methodologically to think about uh, the limitations of using oral history as well um, you know ravinder kaur uh, has a great actually a great article in in caravan where she talks about uh, the complexities of using uh, individual narratives and, and her book, as I'm sure a lot of listeners know, um, talks about, um, uh, you know, uses a caste based analysis of partition to examine lived experiences. So, um, you know, it, it, while it didn't formally feature in the thesis, it did help me think through a lot of, uh, historiographical questions.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, and, uh, it sounds like you've got a very kind of all round, uh, a, a pr- you used a very all-round approach to it, which is uh, amazing, uh, really, in a, um, uh, early on in your academic career. What have you been doing since you graduated? Um,
1: so, you know, uh, the thesis kind of made me very interested in migration and mobility uh, and home, uh, particularly during times of crises. Um, and so that, that kind of question led me to uh, my current job. Uh, at Ajivika Bureau, which is a nonprofit uh, working with uh, communities dependent on labor migration. And Ajivika works in uh, Rajasthan, Gujarat, and Maharashtra, and I'm kind of based in their Bombay office. Um, and I quickly realized once I got here that, um, you know, mobility and migration um, are not complete uh, uh, conceptual frames to understand Contemporary labor migration, right? You have to think about labor, capitalism, uh, industrial relations, gender, caste, all of these things, urbanity, Um, and so that's kind of helped me, you know, broaden my conceptual uh, frameworks. It's 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 given me a lot of experience uh, in the field as well, uh, you know, because we work with uh, worker collectives and unions to do most of our work, uh, which includes knowledge generation, um, you know, providing services like skill training. Health services, financial services, and, and so on and so forth.
0: So let me just make sure I fully understand that um, Ajivika advocates for migrant laborers. Is that kind of is that kind of it in a nutshell?
1: Um, yes, I, I mean I would say I would say that's the case. Um, you know, it's interesting uh, this term migrant labor as well. Uh, you know, because what we see is that. Our interventions, um, our knowledge generation varies very differently based on the geographies that we work in, right? So um, I work in Bombay and the kind of uh, labor and migration that I see is very different from the centers that we have in rural southern Rajasthan, for instance. So just just to kind of define it for the listeners, um, if this can even be done, um, a migrant laborer uh, you know, migrant laborers comprise about anywhere between eighty to one hundred and forty million uh, people across this country. So that's one in ten Indians, um, and that number varies depends on uh, who you ask.
0: Sure.
1: Um, they can be seasonal or circular, which means that they spend, you know, three to eleven months in the city, never settling there, but always kind of returning to uh, their rural homes, maintaining links to rural life. Um, there's also a huge uh, semi-settled or permanently settled uh, you know, population of workers in cities. There's also <laughs> there's a lot of rural to rural migration. There's, um, you know, the, the, the category is largely comprised of Dalit and Adivasi migrants and landless communities. Right. Um, and I think importantly, uh, you know, most migrant workers are engaged in labor at the lowest ends of global supply chains you know, so in in very precarious and informal employment um, without work contracts, often working at home, um, you know, on large construction sites, small manufacturing units, headloading markets. Um, So so it's it's incredibly diverse. And, um, you know, uh, there is no single identity or demographic category. There is no singular experience of work or the city. Um, And I think that's this heterogeneity is something that uh, you know Ajivika has has really taught me to uh, embrace rather than simplify
0: how does that um how does that inform your work though do you if you try to embrace it i, I can imagine that you i mean do you end up trying to go with the kind of um uh, the things that 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 do create that category that the migrant laborers have in common or do you just try and have lots of different approaches and um uh, proposals uh to really try and cover as broad um a number of people as possible
1: yeah i think it 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 certainly informs um the work of our centers which like i said are located in very different geographies um you know and just just and sometimes, you know, it, it even informs um, the way we do certain projects within a certain geography. So, you know, most recently, we studied um, circular migrants' relationships to cities uh, using Ahmedabad and Surat in the state of Gujarat as examples. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and what we saw then, one of our main kind of conceptual findings from that um, was that even within the city, um, this category of the migrant worker breaks down, you know, it, it it holds limited conceptual value, because you have uh, Adivasi or tribal migrant workers living on the streets of urban Ahmedabad um, without water or sanitation. Their employer changes daily, um, and they have no intentions of ever settling in the city permanently. But on the other hand, uh, and this came up from the same study, you have upper caste domestic workers um, who are not living in the open but in small rented rooms. Um, you know they have relatively more secure access to water and sanitation they might have brought their families with them and send their children to school there and they very much intend on settling in the city so so how do you kind of um advocate for um for both these these sets of groups using the singular conceptual frame of migrant worker you know it doesn't really um it it might serve certain strategic purposes but but conceptually it, it really doesn't um You know, and in terms of informing our actual programmatic work, um, you know, in a place like Surat, for instance, where you have Odia migrants from the state of uh, Odisha who've been migrating there for two or three generations now, um, they have some kind of political clout and political mobilization there, you know, so you're able to take on um, industry um, in, in a far easier way. Whereas in a place like Bombay, um, where the industry itself is so fragmented, you know, you have not these large capitalists or large employers running large factories, but you have small micro units. How do you organize workers who have come from three different states um, against, you know, uh, employers who have no capacity to invest in safer work sites or better wages? You know, so, so um, that's kind of how, you know, we, we embrace this diversity to, to inform our collectivization and our, and our interventions as well.
0: So, um, because of the political clout that you mentioned that varies from between groups, um, what are the what, so that you mentioned that made me think of this that um, what are the legal protections? are there legal protection for this very broadly defined or undefined category of worker, and to what extent are are, are the workers themselves aware of these legal protections, and do they have any if they exist? do they have any way of and mobilizing that
1: yeah I mean so so there are certain you know legal protections that are universal so the payment of wages act for instance um, I'm not an expert on policy but to the best of my knowledge it is you know it applies to every single worker um, and I think they've just amended the, the, the state has just amended it in fact to increase its reach um, so that it applies to literally everyone um, But, you know, uh, industry has its own ways of kind of, um, you know, uh, working around these legislations. So um, you have legislation relating to occupational safety, for instance, which applies to, um, you know, units with a certain number of workers and above. You know, so you have to have a minimum threshold of workers uh, in your factory or on your work site for this law to apply to you so that you have to invest in better safety. But in Surat, for instance, what we've noticed is that um, power looms that, you know, employ 100 workers, for instance, are registered as 10 different units employing 10 workers each. You know, so they they automatically escape the purview of this kinds of legislation. Um, In addition to that, um, you know, 93% of uh, employment in India is in the unorganized sector, you know, which is um, often unregulated, employing 10 or less people. Um, and this informality is precisely what industry uses to evade legal protections, um, you know. And and so, in terms of whether workers are able to enforce, uh, you know, these legal protections at their work sites, again, it it depends um, based on the geography, based on the you know the political clout that they have. Uh, largely, uh, migrant workers are, are unable to vote at the destinations at which they work, which means that. Local representatives, whether that's the municipal corporation or your MLAs from the state uh, legislative assemblies, are often unaccountable to these to these workers. You know, so political mobilization often doesn't work. Um, and like I said, because they're employed in very fragmented um, kinds of units, um, often working from home, um, shop floor mobilization in the way that we saw in Bombay in the 1970s. Um, that doesn't work either you know so so uh, yeah i suppose you know uh, workers have to find their own kind of informal networks uh, to ensure that uh, they get the most out of the employment that they have but in terms of structures uh, it's it's basically you know designed to ensure that uh, india has a cheap labor supply that is basically one of its only Um, competitive advantages in global supply chains.
0: Right. Um, Can you say more? You've mentioned a couple of times that many of these laborers are working from home. I'm trying to imagine what they do uh, and also how do you work from home if you don't have a home?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, I think uh, it's particularly relevant now, right, when work from home has become, uh, you know, uh, such such a ubiquitous term.
0: Well, and um, here in my world, it's, it's a privilege. I'm extremely aware that, that the people in, in my um, kind of circles who, who do not get to work from home, they are now in increasingly precarious situations here in the United States. Uh, because of the ongoing quarantine and people that do get to work from home and therefore still have access to their salaries and all the attendant benefits. It's a, mm. it's a category of incredible privilege. That's not what I'm hearing you say in terms of these um, migrant workers. So please please say more.
1: Yeah, so I think there's two ways to look at this, right? One is um, to unpack the, the concept of work, right? What is work? I mean, uh, you know, for, for centuries now, uh, feminist scholars have talked about the unpaid affective care work that is largely gendered in, in the home space, right? So that's one way to look at it. Um, uh, you know, that, that women have been performing work in the home um, for centuries, and it's just not been recognized as work. It's been unpaid. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it serves as a kind of social reproductive function to ensure that the household survives, right? So that's one way I am suppose to look at it. Um, the other way is to understand Um, the kinds of uh, supply chains that we have. So, um, you know, if you're producing a a t-shirt, for instance, um, you know, your large company will send an order to a wholesaler saying that, you know, they need X amount of t-shirts. The wholesaler will send it to, you know, a contractor. The contractor will then subcontract this to um, an employer who, in the case of Bombay, where we work, literally works in a 15 by 15 uh, square feet factory um, where he will employ, you know, anywhere between 10 and 20 workers who are working on stitching machines to get out as many T-shirts as as fast as possible. Um, And I kind of want the listeners to imagine this, right? So so when you're stitching a T-shirt, you have loose ends of thread uh, that might uh, come out of the T-shirt. Those T-shirts are sent to women who work... um, in their home spaces to cut the loose threads off, you know, and and then, and then they send these t-shirts back to that 15 by 15 space. And then it makes its way up, uh, you know, along the supply chain again. So that's the kind of home-based work that I'm talking about that is often gendered, most often um, gendered. It it involves other things such as, um, you know, uh, a lot of street side vendors sell earrings, for instance. So the, the task of, uh, pinning these earrings to a cardboard, right, so that you can sell eight or ten at a time, that's also done by home-based workers in the area that we work in, which is a suburb of, uh, of Bombay. Um, so these incredibly uh, labor-intensive, underpaid tasks are often relegated to the home space. And like I said, this is often why, um, you know, laws and collectivization, uh, laws implementation and collectivization often becomes incredibly difficult.
0: Right and so um i'm just I'm just trying to i mean you you um you invited us to imagine this, and so here I am visualizing this this um process uh, it seems incredibly inefficient, so these t shirts are sent how uh to these uh to people's homes that have these threads cut off like wouldn't it make more sense to bring the the workers in or is this part of the kind of trying to evade? regulations to have it literally outsourced in that way
1: yeah so in in bombay where we work again um you know we work in a in an informal settlement that is um it's a, it's a residential come industrial uh, settlement mm-hmm. so it's in fact the density of this settlement that helps um the supply chain exist you know so you you, you might have um homes that are literally above these industrial units, right? So all you have to do is kind of travel a few steps, and and there you are.
0: Right.
1: Um, so 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 there's been a lot of talk as well about about density in cities and and slums serving as uh, you know hotspots for the spread of COVID. Um, but it is precisely this density that enables these supply chains to to remain alive because um, you know the, the the employer who sends. These T-shirts to the home-based worker often operates on razor-thin margins. You know these margins are as low as rupees one or two, and so it makes it makes fiscal sense. Uh, and in, for, in fact, the, the employer is forced to cut transport costs by relying on home-based workers within that settlement. That's the only way that um, that they can actually survive, right? Because there's been absolutely no redistribution of wealth
0: um,
1: right. along the supply chains from you know, larger um, industries and brands to these very marginal, precarious units um, that often have to, you know, pay low wages, uh, work in incredibly unsafe conditions, uh, just to survive, you know, and I think Rana Plaza might serve as as a good, as as a good starting point for a proxy, you know, maybe people are more familiar with, uh, with what happened there.
0: And so where do these t-shirts end up? I mean, am I wearing one of these t-shirts?
1: Uh, it's, it's, it's very likely uh, that, that uh, you and I and all our listeners are, are interacting with products right now that, that have been manufactured uh, along these supply chains, you know. So large brands, um, you know, use these supply chains again to cut costs, to evade legal responsibility, because these are also transnational supply chains then, right? So how do you actually make your way up and, and and point to this brand or this factory and say, hey, you know, this is actually where uh, the t-shirt ended up. Oftentimes the logos on these products are not uh, applied until up the supply chain, you know. So, so employers in these marginal units, workers here might not even know where the t-shirts are going. Right. Um, but there's been an incredible amount of research that, that's been done um, to suggest that, you know, Western brands are incredibly complicit. Increasingly, Indian brands as well, and not just for garments. You know, I think garments often get you know a lot of attention. Things like automobile parts, things like um, the stationery that we use, um, you know, oftentimes ends up in in places like this. Hospital waste segregation happens here. So, um, so yeah, it's a bit depressing to think that uh, you know everything we're surrounded by, um, you know, oftentimes uh, ends up here. But but I suppose that means that. that we're all complicit, and this is this is a systemic kind of issue,
0: right? And, and I mean, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, you know, how well, you don't have to answer this. I'm just telling you what I'm thinking. <laughs>
1: you know, <laughs> how
0: can one live an ethical life within this capitalist structure? I mean, that's that's a big question. But it's uh, it's frustrating almost to you know think of all the small things we do to um, make gestures towards ethical living, uh, mm. and then uh, and then there's everything that we're possibly not even aware of or we choose to not be aware of cuz ultimately we would like to have that t-shirt
1: yeah and i think you know this this also uh, points to a very uh, interesting phenomenon that's happening uh, in india so you know the question of of labor and migration um, you know like we mentioned has has received uh, unprecedented attention during the lockdown in the last 3 months and a lot of large companies um, have rushed to provide relief and to donate to, you know, state-led and private, private-led uh, fundraisers um, and have actually, um, you know, increased their brand name or improved their brand name by kind of saying, oh, you know, we donated so many crores uh, to, to such and such fundraiser, you know, it's, it's going to go, go towards food relief. But the same industry now, you know, we, we have reports of workers who are actually returning to cities. The same industries um, have oftentimes reduced wages, um, have workers coming back to, to the same conditions. And so, you know, there's an incredible amount of discursive power um, that industries have to make it seem that uh, they're actually part of the solution, not part of the problem. You know, and I think, I think you know, a similar thing exists with, with – um, the relationship between capitalism and the Black Lives Matter movement right with, with industries kind of profiting off this hashtag um, by saying that they're inclusive but actually not employing black people or uh, things like
0: that. Yeah I'm wearing a pride t-shirt and now A of course I'm sitting here wondering where this t-shirt was made but speaking of the the corporatization of an, of an activist movement, I think mm. Pride probably sums it up better than anything else. So, well, I'm, I, of course, nobody can see me, uh, which is why I'm wearing a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it seems to be appropriate to what we're talking about. Um, Raghav, you mentioned COVID. Of course, the migrant laborers is, is, uh, in India have have been getting Uh, global attention it feels or maybe those are the news um, items I read but it feels like there's been a lot of focus uh, on India because of the severity of the lockdown and of course the sheer numbers and then the way the whole migration of people back to their homes um, or their original homes uh, was handled how is that I mean it must have really affected um, Ajivka's work and maybe also your morale
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, we were kind of um, suddenly thrown into um, relief work, which is something that none of us had been trained for, um, you know, logistically, structurally, and like you said, emotionally. Yeah. Um, So, you know, a lot of our centers kind of, uh, you know, posted personal mobile phone numbers on, on social media. Uh, Ajivika curated an emergency SOS list with numbers of organizations across the city, across the country. Uh, Ajivika's Mumbai Center was first on that list. So my phone number was actually uh, ringing constantly um, during basically all of April and May. And what we ended up doing was um, partnering with local uh, food uh, Kirana stores, so so kind of food ration stores uh, in the area that we work in. Um, to ensure that workers that, that were known to us at least could, could go there and, and pick up food kits for free. Uh, and we kind of ran our fundraiser to to subsidize that. Um, you know, in addition to that, um, all of our centers were involved in a lot of advocacy as well. Um, so in Bombay, for instance, uh, we, we were part of a consortium called Mumbai Response, um, which you know identified a number of issues, not just with food relief, but also with public health. Um, you know, ensuring the safe, uh, or at least pushing the government towards uh, safe repatriation of uh, migrant workers on trains. Um, you know, it, it, with, with such efforts uh, in emergency times, it's hard to actually tell how much uh, individual efforts at advocacy actually helped, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and the state was, uh, the state response was incredibly limited and, and too late. Right. Um, both with the repatriation and with the distribution of free food um so it's you know at these times informal organically developed uh, networks of, of non-profits um were at the forefront but i but i will also say that you know uh, a lot of um coping mechanisms uh, across cities were developed by migrants themselves you know so i think uh, it's important to recognize that um uh, you know this this narrative of of the NGO stepping in or, or the state stepping in uh, might actually might actually eclipse the role that workers themselves played uh, in um, surviving the lockdown. You know, so for 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 instance, in our area, uh, a lot of these marginal employers got together um, to set up a community kitchen, for instance. You know, to ensure that workers wouldn't go hungry. The local mosque as well. Uh, uh, provided uh, food relief um, during that time. A number of workers we spoke to, a number of employers we spoke to actually uh, incurred debt so that they could pay for their workers to travel home as well. So, you know, uh, while, you know, I think the question pointed towards what Ajivika's role was, um, you know, in the the relief efforts and during this time, um, I think a lot of work was done um, by workers themselves, you know, including at times through, uh, demonstrations and and, and protests uh, on the streets in front of their employers, which were often brutally suppressed, of course. Um, but but you know we we see these acts of agency um, by workers themselves, um, which are which are really important, I think,
0: too. Yeah, no, thank you, thank you so much for bringing that in because I think they're, they're both in the um, the nomenclature of the quote unquote migrant labor, which you've already unpacked and uh, and kind of. Um, nuanced for us uh, there's also this kind of image of um, of a, a certain amount I, I, I don't want to call it helplessness because that makes it sound even more patronizing but something patronizing like that mm. uh, like this kind of monolithic uh, group that um, needs to be taken care of and uh, it's clearly much more complex than that and there's also a lot more agency so thank you for bringing that in is it is it getting dare I say it better now um,
1: I think it's just, it's still a bit uncertain. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, a colleague of mine actually went back into the field today, um, and he said that uh, you know a lot of workers have not returned yet. Most workers have not returned um, because I think you know the cases in India are still rising, particularly uh, actually in the cities that we work in, which are Ahmedabad, Surat, and uh, and and Bombay. Right. Uh, but also that you know uh, the employers who employ such workers, at least in our area. Um like I said, our marginal have one or two rupee um, margins, and so they've actually been affected pretty heavily uh, so you know I- even if workers are to come back um, they 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 might not have um, you know regular employment uh, and so they run the risk of of you know uh, not having wages, not having uh, food again so so a lot of workers are actually taking their time uh, to to return so it, it's, it's a bit uncertain and I think it'll depend on both the uh, situation with the virus, as well as with the opening up of the economy. And once that happens, whether people at the lowest ends of the supply chains are actually able to recover as well.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think there's um, where we here in the U S are in a similar kind of uh, pattern of, of waiting. Like we're not sure.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Continues. Right. Um it sounds like you do a really incredible, what I may call, grassroots activism. Was this always your plan? I, I know that many Stanford alumni and current students and faculty and staff uh, at Stanford are involved and deeply committed to social justice work and activism. Um, but tell us a little bit about how you moved from reading history at Stanford to doing what you do now.
1: Um, so I think it was... It was um... You know, I, I was actually in, originally supposed to be at Ajivika just for a year um, on a fellowship, okay. uh, and I was, I was actually supposed to come back to to Stanford for a for, for a master's degree. Um, okay. I ended up I ended up dropping that um, and remaining at Ajivika. But I think the the pivotal kind of uh, the, the central question that I was interested in was, uh, you know, um, how how does mobility kind of uh, how do mobility and home kind of relate, and and what's the relationship between migration, home, and belonging and citizenship? Um, and that's what what drew me to Ajivika initially, um, but I quickly realized that um, you know migration alone you know can't serve as a complete conceptual lens to understand mobility. So that's where I started reading a lot more about labor, um, and I think the nature of the work at Ajivika is such that um, you know even if you're a researcher you you're always in the field and kind of always using that knowledge um, to uh, to do any kind of advocacy right so so the the study that we most recently did we're hoping to take that to the municipal corporations um and i think it's just it's just the nature uh, it, it's just the nature of the organization and and being in the field all the time you know um it's impossible to kind of use it just as a, a source of data and then leave um you know you, you inevitably uh, have to confront the evidence that you collect and and think about how to how to use it. Um, yeah.
0: You make that sound like that's a very uh, obvious uh, action. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I mean, I think a lot of scholars uh, struggle with that. I mean, it's a kind of a known quandary of, you know, do you intervene or do you just record it? um and so uh you know you seem to be saying that just recording it or just using it for research it's not it's just not possible you have to get involved
1: uh I mean I I suppose it is possible and I you know I I think you know maybe I'm overstating um at least personally what uh you know the kinds of the stuff that that we're involved in but um I don't know I think it's 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 also about you know, where the center is located, where we're in deep inside this, this informal settlement, we also do a lot of legal aid work um, at the center itself. And so um, everyone kind of does a little bit of everything, you know? Um, and so even, even in the, in the role that we're placed in here, um, that's just, that's just what, uh, what we do. So I suppose I'm not purely um, uh, here as a researcher. You know and I think that that's kind of what what makes it helpful to to move beyond knowledge generation to to advocacy and and to praxis
0: has have your plans to come back to Stanford um been shelved permanently or, are, do, you, or do you think we might still be in your future
1: <laughs> so I actually withdrew from the masters program um, you know because uh they needed an answer as well so um, but no, I think you know uh the the, the post lockdown period poses some uh, very interesting research questions, um, you know, and and offers uh, unique opportunities to to uh, engage with a number of stakeholders, you know, whether that's industry or or the state. Um, and so I think you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the plan is to kind of you know remain here and continue doing this work, seeing how how the work changes and what kind of new challenges it poses. Um, and we will see, I think, uh, for now, just one day at a time, trying to, uh, <laughs> trying to survive the lockdown, trying to exercise to, you know, uh, get some kind of, um, a change in my routine and, and yeah. So we'll see. We'll see what happens in short, I suppose.
0: That's, that's fair. Um, I, I, um, I'm inspired. I want to come and visit and uh, see uh, some of the work that you do. But uh, as you say, it is very much a one day at a time kind of situation and making long distance travel plans is not quite uh, on the horizon quite yet. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. I learned so much um, and um, I'm very grateful to you for making time in your evening to feature on the SaaS South Asia podcast
1: no thank you so much uh, for having me like I said it's always a, a good thing to kind of keep in touch with the center so thank you
0: and, and do stay in touch. And everybody listening, please get in touch with us. We are the Center for South Asia at Stanford, southasia.stanford.edu. Uh, we're on social, all social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also just um, hit us up through the website if you have any questions or concerns. Uh, just get in touch with us. We love to hear from you. And um, I will see you all again soon.